0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. I hope you have your Bible open in front of you to Revelation chapter 14. It's difficult to know whether we should think of this chapter as concluding the fourth vision, the vision of the devil and his henchmen, or responding to it. Uh, At the end of the day, I suppose it it doesn't really matter. This vision gives us a picture of the triumph of God's people. We'll begin reading at verse 1. It says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. You see that? The the devil has his group down on the earth doing their business, counting their money, and congratulating one another. We saw that in chapter 13. You are excluded from that group because you do not have the mark of the beast on your forehead. But take heart, you are included in this gathering in verse 14. You have the mark of God on your forehead, and you are right now with Christ in the congregation of the firstborn. This is Sounds very much like what we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 24. You have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. That's the group you want to be part of. And that is the group that is gathering in heaven all throughout the 42 months, the three and a half years, the 1,260 days, the short, defined, limited, hard, difficult, trying time between the two comings of the Lord. Revelation 14 goes on to say, starting at verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is those who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found for they are blameless. So the church is gathering, they are singing and they are with the lamb. These folks are described as those who had not defiled themselves with women and then also as virgins. We're also told that in their mouth, no lie was found. So what does that all mean? Well, this cannot mean that the only saved people in eternity are virgins. For one thing, that would mean that Peter, James and John and all the other disciples would be excluded. The Bible says they were married men. The apostle Paul laments that the, of all the apostles, only he and Barnabas travel about without a wife. Are we to assume that only Paul and Barnabas are in heaven? Right? David is excluded, Moses is excluded, Abraham is excluded. No, of course not. If, if we were to take this verse in a woodenly literalistic way, poor Abraham would be doubly excluded. He was married and a frequent liar. And yet elsewhere in the New Testament, heaven is actually called Abraham's bosom. No, there are all kinds of clues in the words that are used in the Greek that we're not to take this in a woodenly literal way. The phrase not defiled with women is the typical way of speaking about sexual sin for men. But then it goes on to say they're virgins using the Greek word parthenoi, which literally means unmarried daughters. So these people are described in both female and male terms. That alone should let us know that we're dealing in symbol. It can't be literal because it literally makes no sense. If I said in English, she is my favorite brother, you'd know I was speaking in some kind of code. Maybe I was saying that my brother's a bit feminine, or maybe I was saying that my girlfriend is like a brother to me. I can't mean it literally because it literally makes no sense. So here, I think it's quite obvious that we're being told that these people are those who were singular in their devotion to Christ and who did not believe the lies and deceptions of the devil and nor did they repeat those lies as their witness to the world. These are the remnant, pure in their affections and proclamation. Let's jump back into the text at verse 6. It says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Now, there's some division among commentators as to how these verses should be understood. The trouble begins with the fact that this is the only use of the word gospel in Revelation. And and it is used without the definite article, meaning it may not be the gospel. It may just be a gospel. And we remember that the word gospel actually just literally means the proclamation of, of true or good news. So it's not clear, really, whether we have an angel preaching the gospel or just making an important announcement about eternal truths. Those who think that this is not the gospel will point out that there is not much gospel content provided in this message. There's no mention of the cross or the atonement or the resurrection of the Holy Spirit. Just fear God. Well, that's hardly the Christian gospel. Others say that what we have here is probably more likely a short-form summary, you know, as if to say the sum of the gospel is to fear God and give him glory. Bottom line is this, in this scene directly before the second coming, there is a last declaration of eternal truths. There is a last appeal for people to get right with God, and there is no indication of positive response. By this point in the story, people are either saved or they are entirely closed to the message of the gospel. Verse 8 says this, another angel, A second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Here's another example of something being introduced rather abruptly, but then not unpacked for a couple of chapters. Here we have the first mention and revelation of the concept of Babylon. Fallen, fallen is the great city, Babylon. The story of her fall will be told in detail in chapters 17 and 18, and we'll look at that in a couple of days. Commentators nearly all agree that Babylon here is a symbol of the world culture that stands in opposition to the way of God and that seeks to seduce men and women away from the path of abundant and eternal life. We first meet Babylon in Genesis where instead of obeying God's command to go forth and multiply and fill the earth, men and women decide to stay, to not go forth and to build a tower and make a name for themselves. Babylon, Babylon then becomes the seductive alternative to living life God's way under God's word. In the time of John's writing, Babylon was a mostly abandoned dusty village in the middle of nowhere, but it had become a symbol of the world culture opposed to God. She seduces people to abandon the covenant with God and to commit adultery. So we have a contrast The elect people of God are those who have rejected the call of this culture and who have stayed true to God. Everyone else is fallen. Everyone else is seduced unto death and ruin. Verse 9 goes on to say, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now, I think we talked about this last week. There's, there's an obvious back and forth in the book of Revelation between the mark of the beast and the mark of the Lamb. If you're sealed with the mark of the Lamb, then you will face the wrath of the beast on the earth. On the other hand, if you're sealed with the mark of the beast, then you will endure the wrath of the Lamb for all time, for eternity. Everyone receives a mark and everyone faces wrath. And so there's a clear choice between two very distinct options. And here we have a picture of what happens to those who choose the mark of the beast and who face the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb is awful and eternal. It is poured out full strength or uncut. Wine in those days, of course, was often cut with water to dilute it. Most adults in that time period would drink wine throughout the day because it helped to keep off water parasites. And so you'd be staggering drunk by the end of the day if you were drinking full strength wine. Therefore, you would only drink uncut wine at the end of the day. So this is a symbolic way of saying that all throughout human history, all throughout the day, Our experiences of God's wrath and anger against sin are cut. They are always mixed with grace and mercy. Not so at the end of the age. At the end of days, at the close of history, those who have refused God's gift of salvation are thrown down into hell where they will face his wrath unmixed, uncut, and unending. That is a terrible, heartbreaking reality. This will be torment. There's no annihilation here. There's no sleep. There's no extinction. If you want to believe that, you have to believe that against the words of this text. The text says torment. Now that it happens before the face of the lamb and the holy angels means that hell does not exist outside of God's realm. It is ultimately under his control and it is an extension of his sovereign will. Hell is under his authority. It serves his will and purpose for those who have resisted and rejected every offer of grace and mercy. And of those so condemned, we are told in verse 11, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and who receive, whoever receives the mark of his name. This is frequently called the most awful verse in scripture. And I cannot think of another more deserving of that title It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Therefore, verse 12 says, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Let's keep reading at verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. John is told to write a beatitude, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord for they shall rest from their labors and their works shall follow them. Here we have the positive counterpart to the vision of everlasting torment. You should persevere in faith, the text says, even under torture, not just because hell is a lot worse than what you might face here, but because heaven is a lot better than you can ever ask for or imagine. If you die under human torture, you will go to heaven and rest, and then at the final judgment, you will experience reward because your good works will be remembered and counted. And with that, we move to the last scene of the human story on the earth, the second coming and the harvest of the earth. Then I looked, the text says, Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia now what we're seeing here is the harvest of the earth in two acts first there is the removal of the first fruits which which are the believers Then there is the casting of the vine into the winepress, where it is trodden down, which is generally understood as a picture of an end times cataclysm that wipes the whole earth clean of fallen humankind. The picture that emerges from this final scene is of God selecting his first fruit, his choice offering from the earth, and consigning the rest to the fire. The 1,600 stadia is an obvious symbol in the same way that the 144,000 was. Four in biblical literature is the number of the earth in its totality. Four is also the number of the universe. So we have four times four times 1,000, which is to say that the wrath of God falls upon the whole created realm, leaving nothing untouched. Everything outside the city, that is everything outside of God's election is destroyed by fire. The imagery of blood to the horse's bridle is taken from First Enoch 100, verse 3. The horse shall walk through the blood of sinners up to his chest. Again, this is a symbolic way of saying that all of mankind opposed to God will be finally and utterly submerged in the unmixed wrath of God. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. And thank you for listening to End of the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.endoftheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And hope to see you again tomorrow right here for another episode of Into the Word.